1: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast.
0: Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 264th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. June is Pride Month, for those of you who don't know. And I've never done anything specifically in regards to the LGBT community ever before on the show. And one of our listeners, Melissa Edwards, said, you know, in honor of Pride Month, there is a location that you could feature that has some great stories and some hauntings involved. And that's Asbury Park on the Jersey Shore. I said, well, let me look into this and see what we've got going on. And sure enough, she was right. There's some great stuff here. So in honor of Pride Month, we are doing Asbury Park. I will be joined shortly by Melissa, who's going to share the history of Asbury Park and also some of the hauntings and some of her own experiences. Looking forward to bringing that to you. I just got back from the Haunted America Conference here in 2018. I encourage you guys to join me next year. I'll be there again next year. It's a great place to get together. It's in the center of the country, so it's easy for everybody to get there. And there's a lot of great speakers there, and we do a lot of great events. I want to thank Tammy and Brian for hanging out with me that whole weekend. And it was so great to meet Paula and Sheila. Thanks for introducing yourselves. If you guys see me there, please don't be afraid to come up to me and say hi. I love hearing from you guys, and I would love to have you hang out with me, too. Also got to meet Jennifer Jones and her hubby. She is the blogger who started The Dead History. If you're not checking out that blog, you really must. It's excellent. It's right up our alley haunted history, and cemeteries. And uh, I think I became fast friends with Jennifer. She is a kindred spirit, and I really enjoyed the presentation that she did. I shared excerpts of that with our executive producers over in the HGB Losers Club. I also did a Facebook Live interview, just kind of an impromptu thing with Jennifer, and that is posted up on the History Goes Bump page. I also shared it in the Spooktacular Crew. And for those of you who are in the HGB Losers Club, you got a lot of videos this weekend. I was running around filming everything, it feels like. I think I made at least 15 different videos of cemeteries that I visited and haunted locations. So if you're in there, you got to enjoy all of those. It's only a dollar a month to get access in there and you get to see all kinds of great things when I go around the country and hit these different places or if I'm here in Florida or just sometimes I drew a little something impromptu from right here. I haven't done anything from the quote-unquote new studio yet because I'm just kind of sitting in a room in my folks' house but I'll eventually get around to it and show you guys that you really can do a podcast from anywhere. We had a group of people join us in the spectacular crew. We want to welcome Aaron with an E, Andrew, Becca, Andy with an IE, Atticus, Anthony, Kelsey, and Sherry Ann. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And now this moment, naughty. In July of 1807, Napoleon decided he wanted to celebrate the signing of the Treaties of Tilsit with a rabbit hunt. The treaty ended the war between the French Empire and Imperial Russia. The job of organizing the hunt fell to his chief of staff, Alexandre Berthier. Berthier collected a group of hundreds of rabbits and invited the military's biggest brass to an outdoor luncheon followed by the hunt. The rabbits were kept in cages along the grassy field. When Napoleon announced that he was ready to begin the hunt, the bunnies were released. The hunt was on. But it wasn't on for Napoleon and his band of merry military men. It was on for the rabbits. Rather than fleeing for their lives, the pack of bunnies turned on their aggressors. The main target was the emperor himself. The pack of bunnies swarmed his legs and started to climb up his jacket. The little furballs started attacking other members of the party, and despite the men's best efforts to beat back the demonic bunny horde with crop, sticks, and muskets, the attack would not stop. Retreat was called, and Napoleon ran to the safety of his carriage. The rabbits continued after him and started to breach the carriage. This called for a full-on retreat. Napoleon's carriage pulled away, and the bunny attack stopped. Apparently, the issue was that Berthier had bought farm rabbits rather than capturing wild ones, and these tamer rabbits associated people with food instead of danger. The idea that Napoleon may have faced his greatest defeat resulting in retreat from a group of bunnies certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now, this month in history... month of June on the 11th in 1910, undersea explorer Jacques Cousteau was born in France. He graduated from France's Naval Academy in 1933 and was commissioned a second lieutenant. Cousteau served in World War II as a gunnery officer and later joined the French Resistance where he did espionage work, which eventually saw him awarded the Legion of Honor for that espionage work. He began conducting experiments with underwater filmmaking during World War II. He loved the ocean and underwater diving. In 1943, Cousteau and French engineer Emile Gregnon developed the first fully automatic compressed air aqua lung, which was a scuba apparatus. Cousteau also helped to invent underwater cameras and the diving saucer, which was an easily maneuverable small submarine for seafloor exploration. He is best known for his Emmy award-winning television series, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, which premiered in the U.S. in 1968. He died in 1997 from a heart attack. In honor of Pride Month, listener Melissa Edwards suggested featuring Asbury Park in New Jersey. This is a hot spot for the LGBTQ community and is one of the smaller cities located on the Jersey Shore. This beach is ranked the sixth best beach in New Jersey and began attracting the gay community in the 1950s. In 1999, a gay discotheque called the Paradise Nightclub opened near the beach and the Empress Hotel, which opened in the 1960s, is New Jersey's only gay-oriented hotel. The music scene in Asbury Park is thriving and a place that has launched the careers of rockers like Bruce Springsteen. There is a paranormal underbelly here though with a history of tragedies and spirits stuck in place. Join me and Melissa as we share the history and hauntings of New Jersey's Asbury Park. Hey Melissa, I'm so excited to have you join me.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you for suggesting this because it hadn't even occurred to me to do something that would be an honor of Pride Month. And then I thought, well, let me go see what's going on with this Asbury Park. You know, sometimes people tell me that it's a really good location because there's some haunting stuff and there's really nothing there. And then I started looking up stuff and I'm like, it's got all kinds of great stories.
1: Oh my God. That's, I was, it's funny because when I first said it, I was like, what do I do? I was like, and I was just talking talking to my best friend on the phone and I was like, I had, I could fill hours worth of stories with creepy things and about all the strange and weird happenings in the history of this place. I was like, I think that's why it's endeared me so much to it. I mean, I had my bridal shower in the Paramount theater. I I grew up there and it's become such a part of my life and the history behind it. You, You could go on for days. I could go on for days with all of the awesome things that's both current and past. It's it's absolutely amazing. I went to school down the street. It's just, it's intense.
0: <laughs> First of all, before we jump into all of that stuff, I love to ask yeah. people, since you're listening to the podcast, you obviously are into the paranormal and since you gravitate towards creepy stuff, what, what <laughs> is it about the paranormal and the creepy that, you know, what got you interested in that?
1: Well, it's, I guess it's three parts to that answer. I am the youngest of four kids. I have a twin sister, but I have two older brothers and sisters. My older sister liked to torture me with those horrible, scary stories you tell in the dark and maybe I'm dating myself, but you know, she was a lot older and would sit me down and make me listen to them. But My older brother, who was older than her, was one of those people who was like, you're going to learn not to be scared of that. And he would take me along with him and his girlfriend, who's now his wife. And we would just kind of explore the history and go kind of ghost hunting before we even knew what ghost hunting was. And I didn't realize, I guess, how lucky I was. And It kind of stuck with me for the rest of my life. So, you know, all these years later, he and I still share that. But it's become just, you know, one of my passions where I like the history of it and the haunting of it. And I'm going to find out both.
0: You're a kindred spirit with me then because that's exactly where I'm at. I want to know what the history is because this place seems to be haunted. So why?
1: Right, exactly, and you know, I, I I was lucky enough my entire life to travel with my family, and every single time we would go someplace, we um, would travel up to Canada to a cabin on the lake, and I remember walking through the trails there and finding an old graveyard, and my brother and I would spend hours there, not so much you know to disgrace the area, but to honor the people mm-hmm. there who maybe haven't had visitors in a long time and learn the history of it and find the names and see how they related back to that area. And it's something that, like I said, carried with me for the rest of my life. And most of my travels, if not, you know, all of them, I always try to incorporate that into, you know, what I'm doing.
0: Oh, that's great. I I just spent the weekend in St. Louis, Missouri, and went through about, I don't know, four cemeteries while I was there. And it's just so peaceful in cemeteries. I just absolutely love them. You can hear all the birds singing. And, you know, so many people are terrified, I think, because they're afraid of death. So they're terrified of cemeteries. But I'm like, they're so peaceful and beautiful. And there's so much to look at and to experience. And like you said, it's so nice to go there because we don't think about it, but some of these people may never get visited. So when you're walking through there, they're probably like, wow, somebody's coming to visit for a change.
1: Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head there where I think people need to separate their fear of death with, you know, either hauntings. Um, I always operate, and maybe this is a little insight to myself, not so much as a skeptic, but a person who views energy on something that basically can neither, you know, that principle, it can neither be created nor destroyed, just transferred. So I kind of feel as though that some of these things, if you do have the honor or the chance to see something that you view as paranormal is often sometimes I think seeing a reflection of those energies because they're around there. And I think if the time is right and your mindset is right, if you're open to that, it happens. And then other times I do think that things can be debunked and you're just honoring the, history or the- story of what's happened.
0: I get the feeling that if I was to ask you what is a ghost that that would be your answer right there is that it, it's some form of energy that continues to go on because like you said energy doesn't just go away it just moves somewhere else.
1: Absolutely and yes that's exactly what I would say you know I think some of the fictions and maybe some more of the Evil type spirits that you have, you know, heard of the demonics and things like that. I think that there may be some truth behind it. But at the same point in time, I think the blanket term ghost leads people to fear. And I don't think it's anything that really should be feared at all.
0: No, and as I've said many times on the podcast, I have yet to have had a scary experience in relation to haunting type stuff. So, I'm I'm sure they're out there and I've heard people who've had terrifying experiences, but so far for me, I haven't had anything like that. So, I guess until I do, I'm I'm going to be like you are. I, it doesn't scare me. No, not at all. Well, I have to tell you, I don't really know a whole lot about the Jersey Shore. It's a place that I haven't been to and I've never been to Asbury Park, but obviously you're very familiar with it. So could you tell us a little bit about the area? What does it look like there? And maybe a little bit about the history?
1: Absolutely. Most of, as I call my mission, is to show people that the Jersey Shore just isn't, you know, that show on MTV or, you know, (laughs) everyone, you say Bruce Springsteen, and they immediately call to mind. Asbury Park is a beautiful small town um, right on the seaside of New Jersey, located in Monmouth County. We're about an hour south of New York City. It was established way back in 1871 by a broom manufacturer and he bought the property for about $90,000 and the entire area really has always had that small town feel but wanted to be a big city. A lot of the history of Asbury Park and the surrounding areas, Ocean Grove, Bradley Beach, and everything of that area is based on faith-based communities, mostly the uh, Methodist Church. Um, and that's actually how Asbury Park got its name. Uh, James Bradley named it after Francis Asbury, who was the first American bishop of the Methodist Church. And Asbury Park throughout history, like I said, from the 1800s on, has been progressive and innovative, president's famous. Famous people all ventured there. And like I said, I don't know if it's a proximity to the ocean or where it was for transportation, whether it was by road or by rail. It drew visitors into the seaside. Some of the amazing things, as early as 1894, before he wrote The Red Badge of Courage, Stephen Crane lived in Asbury Park, and he himself felt some of that lore and was able to share it. And he penned several articles under The Ghosts of New Jersey Shore. He tells a story of two star-crossed lovers on a beach in Deal, which is a beach about a minute north of the Asbury Park Beach. So it's amazing to see that here in you know 2018, the same things I'm experiencing and other people um, are experiencing were the same types of feelings and kind of memories and things that Stephen Crane himself was having.
0: Can I just say I guess that I, I if, if my teacher had had me read Ghosts on the New Jersey Coast rather than the Red Badge of <laughs> Courage, I would have been much happier. I mean, the Red Badge of Courage is a good book, too, but I would have really liked the other one better. Or I guess oh, they were I articles totally he agree.
1: wrote. Yeah, they were articles he wrote. But no, I totally agree. And I think, you know, it kind of shows me I have an obsession with the Christmas Carol. And I guess I didn't put two and two together <laughs> until a later time that, I I even collect them that the ghost story, I think, is what drew me to really love Dickens and things of that nature. So I can definitely appreciate that. Yeah, like I said, the history goes on if you fast forward to the 1920s, the buildings that still stand there today, the Paramount Theater, the Convention Hall, the berkeley carteret Hotel, were all of these huge, glorious buildings that um, the construction started. Like we had mentioned, starting as early as the 1950s, Asbury Park became a haven for the LGBT community. And obviously at that time, it wasn't something that is as celebrated as and as accepted as it is today. And throughout history, um, like I said, from the 1950s on, Asbury Park has been a celebrated community for that. And that's something that's very close to me, even so much so. Asbury Park has one of the gay hotels is what they call it. Um, it's the Empress Hotel. They have the Paradise Nightclub. And the community in and of itself was actually saved by a lot of the members of this community coming in, redoing the Victorian style homes and restoring a lot of the things because in 1970, unfortunately, after basically falling prey to some of the economic downturns from the 60s on, uh, race riots broke out and a lot of those historic and poignant buildings were lost. And it's communities like this that brought it back to much of its former glory and is somewhere where people can still come to today and experience a lot of the same grandeur of the 20s, the 30s, the 40s.
0: I think that's great, and this is a place too that I didn't realize was kind of set up almost like Coney Island, with having the amusement parks that were there. Too. Oh,
1: absolutely! It was it was amazing. There was a carousel. It actually was ended up being broken down and sold to parts. And if memory serves me right, still operates in South Carolina now. And my grand, my adopted grandmother actually tells me the story where you would grab the golden rings off the top. Oh, neat. And There was a roller coaster that went out the roof of one building in the amusement center. And we can see pictures of this now. Sadly, like I said, a lot of it was broken off. Um, One of the Hojo's actually recently closed in the last 20 years, but it was one of the last ones that still operated, uh, the Howard Johnson, where you could go get your fried clam strips and everything. And that's something (laughs) that's very, I guess, special to us local folks the stone ponies right across the street. Um, But yeah, it was like Coney Island and people would come and basically promenade. That's where the term I believe they came from and they would go up and down and they would go to the beach and go swimming. They were actually tunnels where the servants could actually walk from the hotels through the tunnels to the beach to help their employers and they wouldn't have to be on the boardwalk or anything. So that's why I said this type of area in and of itself could take up hours and hours just sharing little bits and pieces of the culture and the stories behind it.
0: Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole, and I've brought you with me. When we talk about the amusement parks that are here at Asbury Park, we need to talk about the man who created them and a little bit about the history there. So I'm going to take you down a little rabbit hole here. One of the things that tourists got to enjoy were steeplechase amusements that were built in 1880 by Coney Island impresario George C. Tillew. One of the remnants of this bygone era is the Tilly face, which is a somewhat creepy, iconic image. Tilly is a large male face with a really broad smile and black period-styled hair. He's the mascot of Asbury Park. His origins can be traced back to Coney Island, and is said to be based on George's brother, Edward. No one knows for sure if the face is supposed to represent a leering sexual face or just a fun smile. I leave that up to you to decide, but either way, it still is really creepy. And the original Tilly that was seen in Asbury Park was painted by Leslie Worth Thomas. And of course, it's been reproduced over the years. You can get it on nearly everything in Asbury Park. But Leslie was really the one who designed the way Tilly looked at Asbury Park. If you look at all the different parks that George Tilly you had, they all were very different looking Tillys. So he, he made this one a little bit more original to Asbury Park. So thank you for joining me down the rabbit hole there. Do they know why the gay community gravitated there in the 1950s? Was it the whole idea of you've got the Victorian homes? This is the heart of where a lot of the music is coming out of. Is, is that kind of what attracted them there? or Was there some other reason for it?
1: Well, to the best of my understanding, and this is basically what I've been told, you know, from my friends and from, you know, elders that I've sought out is basically just that, is that at the time, the bohemian communities would inhabit places like this because at the point in time, they were havens for creativity for the arts. And at the same point in time, it was far enough away from the business centers that you could openly practice certain types of, you know, lifestyles sure. and not have to do it in the fear of everybody watching you. Like I said, I I can't say whether that's correct or not, but, you know, I have friends and family members who obviously were alive there and, you know, who really felt at home in that area. And then, As I said, as the economic downturn came, especially the 70s and the 80s, it's one of those places where people came in and could practice, again, things that they love to do and create a community of their own. Some people look at it as taking advantage of perhaps an urban area or an area where people of lower economic status live and taking advantage of that and pushing them out. But even today, you see Asbury Park is a beautiful community where people do work hand in hand and have really made once was barren buildings mm-hmm. and hollowed out construction sites it's just, it's become another tourist destination all over again. And like I said, it's a place where people can live freely and openly. We um, actually just had one of our amazing um, pride celebrations right in a park uh, locally. And it's just an amazing experience. It's just a great community where everybody loves and takes care of it. And I think it'll only get better from here.
0: People probably think I know a lot about the history of the gay community, and I actually don't. So it's kind of <laughs> sad that I don't know a lot of my own history there. But just lis- listening to you talk about the timing and how people would gravitate towards certain areas, I get the feeling that it was the same almost timing and the same kind of feel for San Francisco. You've also got Providence and Massachusetts, which is more for the lesbian community. And it seems like they all started to do that at about the same time. And I'm wondering if it was this whole kind of safety in numbers, we found an area, Area that's derelict and it needs somebody to, to love it and take care of it. And people don't want to really go into that area. So we can call it our own, make it our own. So I kind of get the feeling that that's what's happened here with Asbury Park, too, is that nobody wants this place. It's derelict. You know, by the time you get into the 70s, they want to demolish most of the buildings there. So nobody's really going to mess with us if we decide to make this our community.
1: I definitely agree with you. And I think a lot of the sentiments that you mentioned are fully echoed here. and. It's that sense of community that I think really revitalizes this area and brings that energy back. And, you know, it's a really beautiful thing because the past meets the present here and the community in and of itself has a place to call their own. And it really is. I would love to push, like living in a tourist community my whole life, I definitely want people to come here. But, you know, one of the best things about Asbury Park is the community, is the history and people keeping it alive. And it is the LGBT community there that keeps me there, keeps a place for my my friends and my family everywhere to go and just feel accepted. And I I couldn't be happier to be part of that story. So
0: Well, you had mentioned Bruce Springsteen earlier, and I talked a little bit about how there was a a big music scene here, and there's a lot of musical history here. You got the convention hall and the casino there that was built back in the 1920s. And I don't know if you could talk a little bit about some of the big names that came through back then, and then who we've had come through now. It's just amazing, the music that has come out of Asbury Park, and anybody who knows a little bit about Bruce Springsteen, I think they know that it holds (laughs) a special place in his heart. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah, like you mentioned, the music, I think under the same principles that we discussed before about the other communities, that was a haven for the arts. Um, Some of the biggest names, Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, some of those just really enriched the culture here. The Stone Pony, you can still go there today. It's just a glorious area, and he'll pop up sometimes too, uh, which is great. E Street is a real street. In Belmar, only a few miles down the boardwalk, um, like I said, Bon Jovi, he himself has a restaurant in the area too. It's a community that just keeps on giving back. Authors, artists, up and down the boardwalk even now, you'll see these quaint little shops and everything of just everybody who celebrates the area. One of my favorite pictures that I have in my home is actually Johnny Cash sitting in the garden of the Berkeley Carteret Hotel, crossing his legs, eating cake. It may not have been (laughs) his most proud moment. But again, just to show you um, some of the culture and kind of life that is in this area, there's the the convention hall has tried to really maintain a lot of its heyday glory. Um, At one point in time, it was actually condemned and People went in there and re- and tried to revitalize it and really did to the point that we have concerts there, roller derby. But there's actually a story where a showgirl may haunt some of the backing areas and things like that. So again, and that's some of the stories that I love to bring are those ones of the early 30s and 40s. Uh, a lot of the history that people don't know.
0: Oh, yeah. Just the fact that Billie Holiday would perform yeah. there. You got me there. I- I'm totally there yeah. if she's performing. <laughs>
1: Yes, and and it's really funny. I think I brought it up earlier. Is I'm a very family centric individual, and my family really celebrates the art of storytelling. And my adoptive uh, grandparents, especially my adoptive grandfather, he uh, passed away last summer, but he had a beautiful just gift to tell a story. And he would tell us stories of how in the 30s he would come down and what stores were where, and he saw Billie Holiday. Frank Sinatra would come down. There was an Italian restaurant up the street where you could go and see sometimes the Rat Pack would stop by. It was just a very cultural just area. It was a a place where everybody came. That's why they had these hotels and uh, these grand homes. And even Woodrow Wilson had a summer White House not too far from Asbury. Like I said, the, the kind of the who's who of the time was there. They were so popular at one point in time, especially in the 30s. They had a radio station that broadcasted, I believe it was WCAP, that broadcast directly out of the convention hall. And at that point in time, that was something huge.
0: Well, we've talked about music and we've talked (laughs) about, you know, you had these amusement parks and things there, but they also had another tourist attraction there, which is really bizarre. But we had this disaster, the S.S. Morrow Castle, and it ended up becoming a tourist attraction there. Will you tell everybody about that story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's actually one of my favorite ones. And it's a lot of that people don't know. If you say the word Titanic everyone immediately gets a mental picture. Even if it's Rose and Jack on the bow of the ship flying, they know what that is. You say SS Morrow Castle and a lot of times I get a look from people like my dog does, like he kind of cocks his head and stares at me. (laughs) Well, what's that? The SS Morrill Castle was a luxury passenger liner, and very little people know that between September 7th and 8th of 1934, it came ashore ablaze right in front of Convention Hall in Asbury Park. And again, it wasn't just your run-of-the-mill shipwreck. This was one of the stories and why I love to tell it so much of, you know, murder and intrigue and cowardice and heroism and maybe even a possible psychopath thrown in there for good measure, um, (laughs) which always, I think makes the best stories. Sure. In 1934, the United States was in the throes of the Great Depression and prohibition was still in effect. So obviously you had masses of people who couldn't and didn't have the funds for the lavish rest and relaxation that, you know, they probably could have used at the time. Making Asbury Park a huge destination site for people to come because it was affordable and it was close. For those who were better off, there were opportunities for more luxury escapes, thus making use of the SS Moro Castle. She was an ocean liner that would travel from New York to Havana, Cuba. It was a pleasure cruise. And as we said, Prohibition was in full effect. They take advantage of the international waters. And once you get a few miles out, the the bubbly could be poured and people could, you know, if they wanted to take in as many alcoholic beverages as they want without anything, you know, really, really bad happening to them. So the SS Morrill Castle was on the water for four years. You know, the le- lessons learned from the Titanic were built into this ship. Obviously, in 1934, the Titanic had only sunk a mere 22 years earlier. So this was a state-of-the-art vessel that was basically sink-proof, fireproof for what they thought had more possible life vests and lifeboats than anybody could possibly need. During this voyage that I'm talking of, they they claim there are about 538 passengers aboard. That remains to be kind of scene. Some people think there's more, some people thinks they were less. Rumor has it that from New York to Cuba she was carrying munitions and from Cuba back she had a cargo hold full of treated animal hides that they would end up using to make uh leather. Mm. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting type thing, as I said. As I mentioned previously, you know, she was state of the art. She had fire detectors or what they used as fire detectors back at the time. And with that cargo hold full of those tan hides, there was an odor that was being circulated through the ships. So basically, the captain ordered that to be turned off. So the odors would stay down, sadly, though, limiting what type of fire detection that they would have. And some people kind of would look at me and say, well, how can a brand new four-year-old ship, state-of-the-art, burn Mm -hmm. a mere few miles away from its final destination? And as I brought up earlier, the captain had shut off the fire detection system and Only a year earlier, they were doing fire drills and lifeboat drills on that very ship, and water leaked from one of the fire hydrants, and a passenger slipped and fell. She damaged her ankle, and she sued the the ship line and was awarded $25,000. And some of us say, oh, $25,000, but we're talking about 1934 America. A dentist's yearly salary at that time was $1,000. That's a lot of money. (laughs) That's a lot of money for a company to have to shell out. And as a result, the captain of the ship made a choice that there would be no more fire drills. There would be no more lifeboat drills just to save themselves the liability. No one really knows if uh, the captain, his name was uh, Robert Wilmot, made that decision himself or it was sent from the powers that be. But it is known at that time. And that's from people who were aboard the ship and people who worked the ship said that after that point, there was no more of these fire drills that happened. So I think that was one of the many steps that kind of suddenly set in motion what was to happen. On a cruise ship, much like it is today, normally the last night of the cruise, there's huge parties, a gala, a ball of some sort. And as everybody was getting ready for this, Captain Wilmot was discovered dead in his cabin. I've actually heard kind of when I've, I've gone to the museum down in Beach Haven that they claimed he died of indigestion. And at that time it was like a, Blanket uh, mm-hmm. diagnosis for people who, because he claimed that I guess he was brought dinner, claimed he had a stomach ache, and the next thing you know, he was dead. Did he have a heart attack? No, no one really knows. When the wreck of the Moro Castle was cleared, the captain's remains were found and brought ashore. Sadly, they were only able to fit what was left in just a small box the size of a suitcase. So there was never an autopsy done. Oh, I was never asked
0: that. <laughs> yeah,
1: everybody said, oh well, they could have done it. Well, you know, sadly, no. yeah, and there's. Another kind of twist to the story where crew members claim that he was put in a refrigeration unit, but when they found his body, he was in a completely different part of the ship. Again, that's just mere speculation kind of adding to the intrigue of the tale.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Obviously, every ship needs a captain. So the chief officer, William Worms, became the acting captain for the remaining time on the voyage. It's said from the crew and that he did the best he could with what he had in the circumstances. He really did try his best. And obviously, as if it weren't bad enough, the captain died. They're only, you know, a few miles, a couple of hours away from their final destination. In blows one of our signature Jersey nor'easters. If you live on the shore, you'll know these things can blow in. They toss up the water, last for 24, 48 hours, and they kind of go away. Obviously, it was making the task of guiding the ship a little bit harder. As the wind blows in, Captain Worms gets an alert that there is a fire that broke out in a bookcase-style cabinet in the writing room in the library. Most of the interior of the ships at the Times, if you think the Titanic, um, this was decorated in the same fashion. Everything was wood. Oh, Um, sure. (laughs) <laughs> and if it wasn't wood, it was either covered in or painted in some type of flammable material. So. <laughs>
0: but it's it's non-flammable, right? <laughs> the right. ship can't burn. <laughs> it's a
1: fireproof ship, but they <laughs> would paint it and cover it in oil-based lacquer or something that had terribly flammable alcohols to it. Underestimating the size of this blaze, Warm sends a couple guys to go deal with it, puts out what is the visible forms of fire, not realized. Realizing that this fire has already taken hold in lower levels of the ship, and then thus catches everything else on fire. Like I mentioned previously, it was customary at the time, one of the duties of the ship's staff was to paint. They would either be painting the decks or be painting the sides of the ship. They'd start at the stern and go to the bow. They'd finish there and they'd go back and forth with this thick, thick oil-based paint. Like I said, we can kind of see where this is going. Not responding and not having the fire detection system would end up being one of the things that led to the demise. It just caught fire and it ravaged the whole entire ship. It basically got to the point where the ship's staff would run through just screaming at people to put on your life jackets, hurry up. Some of those who were so unlucky were either overcome with fumes or were trapped by the flames and trapped below deck. So they were dead before they were even basically made aware that a fire was even burning, which obviously is tragic in and of itself. Because of the changes in the command, there was a chief engineer, even Abbott, who was supposed to be the right hand man of Captain Warm's. And he himself was one of the first people to basically jump in a boat and abandon ship. They claim that he tried to remove his, you know, medals and things like that, that would associate him as being a member of the ship's crew. Later, he would be caught and tried and jailed for his cowardice. But obviously, it's just a sad and tragic event. Obviously, now leaving William Worms to depend on the other members of the staff left. Chief radio officer George Rogers was basically their only hope for assistance. Worms gave him the command to put out an SOS. And a funny little story behind George. Again, just another level of intrigue. George was outsourced at the time. They didn't have like radio operators and they didn't do background checks or anything like they would do now, unfortunately. But George had an extremely questionable past. He had incidences of pyromania, assault, and even from first person accounts had some serious antisocial behavior so despite his talents as a radio operator rumor has it that his contract was going to be canceled once he reached port
0: hmm. in new
1: york yeah interesting. and who, it is interesting because who would make that decision the captain yeah. who's now
0: passing. who takes ill on that particular trip surprise surprise right yeah
1: <laughs> obviously it's It leads some people to believe that this isn't so much a series of unfortunate events, but rather could possibly be a cold, calculated incident of mass murder and arson. I guess it'll remain to be seen. They said George Rogers was given the order by Worms to issue an SOS. Rogers waited a whole 38 minutes before sending out that sos obviously if there's fire ravaging an entire ship every second counts if you look at pictures of the ss Morro castle's wreck you will see just how hot and intense these flames were it it twisted metal it melted the paint right off the sides of the ships it warped the deck so it's really sad to think that somebody there'd be no reason for him to withhold contacting authorities for help. So it just makes you really question what his motives really were. I looked at a picture of Rogers and he almost reminded me of seeing a serial the serial killer's picture where he was a clown and then they showed you his regular face. Like there's just something <laughs> inherently off about the way that the, again, like I said, mm-hmm. that's probably a very ignorant comment on my point, but it was just one of those things where I just got a bad feeling he if you didn't shady. tell me. Yeah, He looked shady, exactly.
0: So this ship, after it catches fire, basically beaches itself right near Asbury Park, how do they turn this into a tourist attraction?
1: Well, it's, it's like you said, is that it basically for miles, it drifted, they attempted to tow it, the tow line snapped, it beaches right here, it's still on fire. And at that time, like I said, it's 1934, people are looking for things to do. And this is something, this is really, imagine a you know 500 some odd foot long ship, almost to the point you could feel the heat from the fire just standing on the beach. And that's what's, it's insane because once the engine stopped working, they couldn't pump water to put any of the fire. So the only choice that you had was to let it burn. And the the crew, like I said, at one point was given the order to abandon ship. Their shoes were, the deck was so hot, their shoes would melt to the deck. So the only choice you had was to jump off. And given the Nor'easter, one of the things that actually drove the public to the beach was that the authorities couldn't get out to help them. So local fishermen and local businessmen took it upon themselves to go out in their own boats. There's actually this one boat called the Paramount, which was led by the Bogan family. The Bogan family still has marinas and boat um, and fishing style businesses out of Brielle. They saved 67 people. And this was, I think, one of those incidents too where the community Mm. came out to support everyone. They they actually say that there was a four-hour traffic jam from the Holland Tunnel, because that's how many people, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people came to see the shipwreck. It wasn't something you saw every day. And the wreckage trail went for almost six miles from a town called Spring Lake all the way up to Asbury Park. People wanted to see it. They actually had turned the convention center into a makeshift morgue where they would lay out the dead, and people would actually pay to even just go take a peek to satisfy their morbid curiosities. I guess it really just, yeah, I guess it goes to show you kind of the mindset of the time when it was basically beached right outside of Asbury, they would take cables and they ran it from the balcony area to the ship and they would shuttle people on these little kind of stools that were made out of those lifeboat rings and shuttle them back and forth, whether they were trying to keep put it, they were trying to put more of the fire out or rescue items off the ship. It just became a huge thing. There's pictures and video of people in the water playing as this ship burns. Like I said, obviously, it must have been a respite from the seriousness of I guess the current goings on, but it was the end of the tourist season and it still brought tons of money and tons of people into Asbury Park. They actually say that Jersey's known for its jug handles and there's a horrible traffic circle about a mile west of the shore. And they say that it's because of the Morrill Castle that they had to build this Asbury Circle basically to funnel people in because that's how many people, you know, wanted to see this. And the town tried to cut a deal with shipline to keep it there. Uh, so people could just keep coming, seeing it. They wanted to see it. They, you know, I think it goes to show you that people's obsession with the macabre and the unknown go is, is timeless. It's not just today. It basically stayed there until those hides that we spoke of started to rot, and the stench just became so bad they ended up just having to take it away because it was ruining the rest of the tourist's uh, experience on the beach. I don't think anybody would really want to spend. Their time bathing in Yuck. the smell of rotten, yeah, rotten animal hide. That's the as the best as I could put it. You know, hundreds of thousands of people came to see this. And going back to George Rogers, he tried to use his fame that he was because he was the one who stayed and helped and got the SOS. He ended up getting a job with the Bayonne Police Department to help them set up a radio communications system where they could call basically from their station to their cars. And he had a disagreement with one of his sergeants and ended up rigging his heater and his fish tank to explode. And the sergeant lost his arm. He damaged his leg. Rogers went to jail for this. He didn't stay there very long. He got out and then had a disagreement with his neighbor over money he borrowed, ended up saying, hey, I'm not going to pay the money back. I'm just going to bludgeon my neighbor and his daughter to death. And that finally is what got Rogers, the former radio operator of the Morrow Castle, in jail in Trenton, New Jersey, where he later passed away, taking kind of all of his secrets with him and solidifying, I think, the SS Morrow Castle as one of the most unknown Amazing shipwrecks, I guess you could say, of uh, the New Jersey kind of rich maritime history, which I find just absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think of, of a guy who can bludgeon his neighbors to death over money, I, I could believe that maybe he had a little something to do with the uh, captain in the ship going down kind of thing, too.
1: Most definitely. I definitely believe that he played a little bit more of the story than he originally let on. And they actually, some people actually believe that what led him to try and kill the police sergeant was that he when questioned about his experiences on the Morrow Castle obviously you know guys in the station want to know that he may have let on a little bit more than he should and some people actually say that the details that he gave were almost from the viewpoint if he was the actual arsonist um, and obviously these are trained law enforcement professionals who have experience in this and something wasn't sitting right so they believe that maybe he let on a little bit bit more than he should have and tried to silence the police sergeant in Bayonne so he didn't rat him out and it obviously ended up not working.
0: Well, we talked a little bit about Stephen Crane, but we didn't talk about the fact that he had a home that was here on Asbury Park. Yeah, the Crane House, is an, it's an
1: absolutely um, beautiful historical site. It still operates now. Obviously, there's been, you know, paranormal TV shows and everything that have gone there to kind of see if it's haunted. I've had my own experiences there. I can't so much say that it's haunted, but it's just a beautiful cultural place to go to say, you know, one of the formative authors of American literature found inspiration here. It was actually named after the flowers that grew on the uh, front lawn there. And it's just amazing to see, uh, I think, the cultural timeline that goes there. You know, not to discredit anybody who's had experiences there. For me, it's just more of kind of an historical uh, gem than anything. And the community has really done a lot to try to preserve that, which I think is commendable on their behalf.
0: I want to share a little bit more about the Stephen Crane house. Stephen Crane was born on Mulberry Place in Newark in 1871. He came to Asbury Park with his family when he was 12, and his father died shortly thereafter in 1880. In 1883, his mother would move them all into a home called Arbutus Cottage, and that's what will become the Stephen Crane house. It was a wooden framed home and took its name from the little blue flower ground cover known commonly as Mayflower. Crane went off to school, but he spent every summer since he was a teenager gathering news stories in and around Asbury Park for his brother's news service. He left Asbury Park in the summer of 1892 for a bohemian life in New York City, and it was at this time that he had already written his first novel, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, a dozen short stories that were called the Sullivan County Tales, and scores of newspaper articles. He returned to the family house in Asbury Park in 1896, but eventually left to write for several news syndicates covering the Greco-Turkish War and then the Spanish-American War. He died of tuberculosis on June 5, 1900, and he was only 28 years old, so he got a lot done in his very short life. And despite the fact that all of us have probably had to read the Red Badge of Courage when we were in school, he didn't really make a lot of money for it. Arbitus Cottage remained in the Crane family until 1899 when it was sold to a man from Newark. The home has seen several owners and incarnations from private home to boarding house. Through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Archie and Florence Morcorkendale owned the house and named it the Florence. It fell into disrepair after that time and was set to be demolished in 1995. Tom and Regina Hayes saved it when they bought it for $7,500. They restored the house and turned it into a museum that you can go see today. Now, as Melissa said, the house is reputed to be haunted, and TV's Ghost Hunters has even investigated the location. Grant and Jason recorded what sounded like disembodied singing during their 2010 visit. People who visited the house claim to see full-bodied apparitions and to hear ghostly voices mostly of children laughing or crying. There are also claims that a poltergeist is here and it has been known to hit visitors on the head with fireplace tools. That's not very nice. A legend claims that a woman lived in the house alone and allegedly went mad in the dilapidated house. People said that the spirits made her go crazy. When she was moved out, people found that every available inch of wall space was covered with angry writings and phone numbers of politicians. And really, who of any of us have not done that at some point? It is in this room that a disembodied voice has been heard saying hello more than once. Kathy Kelly wrote in Asbury Park's Ghosts and Legends, The third story of the house, currently unfinished and uninsulated attic storage space, had actually been used as some rather sad living quarters for later residents of the faded hotel, and rumors have long circulated of deaths that have occurred up there. One of the most often told stories of the Crane House is of a ghostly woman who's been seen gazing from the window of the attic tower. The Carriage House is also said to be haunted. Workmen tell stories of feeling threatened by mysterious falling objects while working in there. A visitor claimed to see a full-bodied apparition brandishing a gun once. Doors have mysteriously opened and closed on their own in both houses and are found to be either locked or unlocked without anybody remembering having done either to the doors. Chairs scrape across floors in the middle of the night. Pictures fall off walls. And a cat that has lived in the house has been intrigued by an antique closet door that's creaked open when she stopped and stared at it. So we got some stuff going on at this house. The Paramount Theater, you had mentioned that. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Uh, well, the, the Paramount Theater is actually attached um, somewhat to convention halls. So okay. if you're if you're walking down the boardwalk towards the north end of the beach, you will actually go into like this beautiful um, arcade area. Convention hall is to your right, the Paramount's to your left. I personally was lucky enough to have my bri- my bridal shower up in the balcony area of there. And again, there's, there's actually a local paranormal store run by a woman named Kathy Kelly. She's a brilliant woman. She has done great things for the community. She can ducks ghost tours there. And there is actually a story that goes with that location where the chair will fall down or somebody's sitting in there. When you go in there, it almost has a carnival feel to it, in my opinion. And there's definitely some weird ambiance, especially if you're walking there either alone late at night. Um, think, you know, marble floors, velvet seat cushions. It's just a place, like I said, that's had so much life in it. I wouldn't be surprised if pieces. Is- have been absorbed into the literal fabric of that theater because I myself have had experiences there where things have dropped when they shouldn't or you just get that eerie feeling that you're going to hear shoes clicking behind you shortly. But again, like I said, I think with an area that's experienced so much, I wouldn't be surprised and having so much culture there. It's it's just a gorgeous, you know, historical piece that we're lucky to have. And um, we still have shows there today, concerts and everything. It's a smaller venue, but it's really kind of an architectural gem as well as a hub for paranormal activity, in my opinion.
0: So you yourself have experienced stuff there.
1: Oh, I've yes. I, I like to consider that I've been lucky enough to have experienced some things. And probably why I love telling the story of the Morrow Castle, too, is because of its close proximity to the Paramount Theater, but also the personal attachment and stories to an experience that I had. It's one of those things where you didn't realize it at the time, but then later on, when someone gives you a little bit more information, you kind of sit there gobsmacked, like, maybe that's that's what I saw. Interesting.
0: Well, I know you mentioned was it Kathy Kelly? Yes. She I think describes in one of the books that she's written there that outside of this hall on the boardwalk, a lot of people will see the full bodied apparition of an African American naval officer.
1: Yes, and there is hangs around it, there. He does. And he's the type of individual who, and from, I've, I've never seen him personally, but people that I have spoken to who have seen him, he he's not there. Like I said, it's nothing evil about it. He's just kind of existing in another time and just walking down. Like I said, the story of Asbury Park goes so far back in history. Um, There was actually a shipwreck even before the Morrow Castle. People say that there's a woman you can see on the beach, you know, wandering or, you know, people have seen strange lights or hear certain noises. Having somebody in the community that you can bounce these stories off of, I think, lends someone like myself to realize that maybe I'm not crazy. (laughs) <laughs> you know, she really does a lot to keep that alive. Like I said, between the soldiers, you know, New Jersey in and of itself has such a rich cultural history from, you know, even pre-revolutionary war to Native Americans. There's, you know, stories in Asbury Park that kind of encompass all those time frames. And it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And if you're lucky enough to experience something, you take home something that's more of a souvenir, I think, than anything you can pick up in one of the stores.
0: Do you know anything about the Synaxis restaurant at all?
1: Well, before it was an Axis, yes, I do. It was originally Harry's Roadhouse. And I had the honor of working there for two years. And I do have a funny story beyond that. And um, I don't mean to take over the conversation, but there is a story that goes along with that about a little girl. Like I said, Harry's Roadhouse was another haunt of, you know, Bruce Spring. And everything, and in the early 2000s, a company came in and reopened it. And like I said, I had the honor to work there, which is now um, the restaurant that you mentioned. And there's a little girl who went missing and people, you know, tried to find her. And they say that perhaps the ghost of this little girl may haunt that area the same as made the ghost of, because I believe that previously it was a drugstore. And that's the experience that I have. We were closing down the one night and it was me. And I'm not going to say my friend's name, but he and I were downstairs. I was putting some stuff away in the liquor room and he was managing the place. So he was doing some closing work. And you heard a girl laugh and almost like she was running like a stick along the beer bottle. So we just assumed maybe somebody was upstairs. So we come running up and nobody's there. And there were two bars in two different rooms so we run to the other room to check and hear it again and it was like at that point in time we're like all right you know what everything's closed everything's good let's lock up let's go. We didn't say anything to anybody and then I heard the story about when new owners came in they had a similar experience which to me only solidifies that it's there.
0: Absolutely and there would be no reason for a child to be in this place where you were at.
1: <laughs> no, no and that was the that was and that was the thing and after a couple of times of other people telling you these stories, I think my knee-jerk reaction is to try and debunk it and be like, it was something there. Or as I also have a habit to do, just stuff it down. And be Like, all right, let's, let's just get out of here. But it's like both of you standing outside. Like, did that just happen? I, I think it did. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of the many crazy things that I think is, you know, Asbury Park.
0: Well, and when you share an experience like that, I love that because it's a lot harder to be skeptical about it when it's somebody else heard it too. You can't just say, well, maybe I was hearing things. If that person's looking at you like that, it's like, okay, they heard it too.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a cartoon where you kind of just sit there and blink at each other. And Uh it's like a silence. That's a silent acceptance of, okay, we we did just experience this. Okay. And you kind of just move on. I mean, like I said, it's something that I treasure that obviously, that energy or whatever it was decided to show itself while I was there, whether the time was right or not, you know, whether it happens at the same time every day. I was there. It didn't. I, you know, I worked there for a while. And that was the only time I experienced it. So, you know, it's a pretty, pretty amazing thing.
0: And then I've heard that Asbury Lanes is haunted. Have you heard anything about that? I don't know anything further than that.
1: Well, actually, Asbury Lanes, uh, I've heard a lot. Again, it's just what you think. It's actually was shut down for a while and recently just reopened. And my biggest fear is when construction takes place, all hell breaks loose. Prior to this, like I said, it was an old style bowling lanes. There was a bar in there, a stage in the middle of the lanes. And I've had so many of my friends and people who have worked there, um, you know, tell me the pins will knock themselves over. The worst thing is in the bathroom. You do get strange vibes from there. And this was before I was really even told the story of there. It's just some place like you don't want to go into by yourself. And Like I said, it, it has a history I'm spanning back. And, you know, I have a friend who had an experience where she, swore to God, she saw a guy who was dressed like he was from Hell's Angels in the woman's bathroom. And she's, wow. she's like... And I looked around the bar. I was like, well, nobody's here. There are so many stories that have to do with that. But like I said, every single story I hear isn't menacing. It's almost like we're getting the opportunity to view into a time past.
0: And before I let you go, you sent me some more information (laughs) about this interesting historical event. And this has to do with the great white shark, supposedly, that was attacking people in that area.
1: Yes, this is my favorite story ever. I have a phobia of sharks, but at the same point in time, a healthy respect for sharks. In the summer of 1912 was a, some people call it the Summer of Red. There's so many different things where there was a series of five shark attacks along the Jersey Shore. And some people say, although producers deny it, that it was indeed the attacks that uh, motivated the author of Jaws or the movie producers of Jaws. Just in our home area, starting down in Beach Haven, another attack occurring in Spring Lake and then more attacks occurring further north and actually surprisingly inland a couple mi- miles in a brackish uh, que- creek, uh, Madawan Creek. It's actually an area where I live now and I pass on my train going into the city to work every day over it where the final three attacks occurred where sadly a few youths lost their lives as well as a man who dove in to try to save them. And it created this entire mass hysteria where people went in with hunting parties with dynamites, shotguns firing into the water. Because at that time in 1912, people did not believe that sharks were real. Some people still thought they were sea monsters. Um, some of the old newspaper clippings you'll see would say, you know, giant turtle, killer whale eats legs off lifeguard off, you know, Spring Lake. And um, it really caused, I think, the public to pause and you know, scientists to pause and take a look at this and say, hey, you know what, we kind of are invading their habitat. And it's one of those things where some people are like, oh, there's no sharks around here. Oh, no, there, there are. And sadly, at that point in time, people had to lose their lives in order to figure that out. But it's one of those uh, hidden gems of the Jersey Shore that people don't really know about and that I love sharing. So that's a pretty exciting story, in my opinion.
0: How many people ended up losing their lives during this attack?
1: If I recall correctly, it was five because you had the individual, the man who was vacationing from Philadelphia, I think his name was Charles down in Beach Haven. He went out swimming and originally they thought he was, I think, calling for his dog. And when the lifeguards went to go finally pull him out, they saw that his entire leg had been bitten off They bring him across the street to a hotel where sadly, um, you know, he died, but the public didn't, there was no outcry because no one really knew what was happening. And then a few days later, a bellhop from the Essence and Sussex hotel in spring lake went out for a swim after his shift was over. Sadly was again, attacked by a shark, but to this point had both of his legs basically bitten clean off and died in the light le- in the lifeboat on his way to the shore. And again, not not this was one of the hottest summers on record and a record number of people were coming in from the cities to go and swim at the ocean and cool off and you know kind of just enjoy all the summer had to offer and the authorities didn't really know what to do at the time and they didn't really warn bathers, hey, stay away from the beach or anything like that. And then, like I said, the final set of attacks that took place were unheard of. People didn't think sharks could go inland. And and the next uh, set of attacks actually happened in a place, like I said, Matawan Creek, which is a couple miles inland. And the story goes that a, a ship captain for a steamboat, I believe, saw what he claimed to be an eight foot shark coming in and ran to tell everybody and it was disregarded. Well, there was a young boy and his friends, they all went swimming off one of these uh, steamboat docks. Um, This individual himself had epilepsy. So when he disappeared under the water, his friends originally Mm. thought that he was having a fit, They run and go get help. I believe a man by the name of Stanley was the one who jumped in the water, found the little boy's body, and when he was attempting to bring it up, he himself was attacked by a shark. Sadly, obviously, the child had already been deceased, and he himself ended up dying later on from his injuries. And no more than 30 minutes later, further upstream, another child was attacked. He fortunately was actually ripped from the mouth of the shark by his brother and his brother's friend. And he would later recover from his injuries. Like I said, Mm -hmm. at that point Mm -hmm. in time, that's when the public went crazy and they took to the waters. There's actually pictures and everything I'd love to share where people are shooting shotguns and setting dynamite off, (laughs) you know, it was in attempts to catch this quote unquote man eater people caught, there were awards out for anyone who caught this shark. And some claims say that, you know, sharks were taken in with human remains in their stomach, but, you know, none can really be pinpointed to say that is the shark that did it. But that was kind of the end of the shark attacks for that season. And whether it was, you know, the shark was killed or the shark took off or, you know, whatever it was, there's many, many theories. Even now, as science has progressed, it's thought that it maybe wasn't a white great white shark after all. Perhaps it was a bull shark sure. because bull sharks have been found. I think I think they always say up the Mississippi River as far as Illinois, but again, that's that's science versus folklore. Um, I think some people see great whites, think great whites, and think man eater. But again, it may be a, a misconception fueled by the Jaws movie. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really knows, but it's just a really fascinating story. Like I said, I think that. Uh, some people have no idea it even happens. They come down to the Jersey Shore, hop in the ocean, not knowing that, you know, back in 1912, they would try to put up gates and everything in an attempt to keep animals and fish out of the bathing areas. They <laughs> yeah. would tie it. Doesn't it's, work it's with crazy. a shark. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think if he wants to get in, he will. And, If you were to come down to Matawan now and try to find the area where this took place, you basically like have to bushwhack to get there. It's almost something that I feel that people really try to hide happening because no one really wants to admit that they're in the water.
0: Yeah, I've heard bits and pieces of that before. I think during Shark Week, they'll tell the story about that. And it just always blows my mind because you think you're inland, you're just jumping into this river area, you should be safe playing there as kids and... You don't expect to have your leg bitten off by a shark.
1: No, absolutely not. And I think some people would think that it was one of those tales that your grandmother would tell you so you didn't do something stupid. But in the end, it it really happened. You know, it's one of those stories, like I said, that almost gives you a healthy fear of the ocean that I'll respect you if you respect me. But, you know, you can never turn your back on it because that's when it'll get you type thing you know, it's it's just one of those great American tales that I think people would actually be drawn to more if they shared it more. And, you know, with things like Shark Week and everything, it just feeds, I think, the curiosity of people. And uh, at least it feeds mine. It's the best week of the
0: year, in my opinion. But, I love it, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crazy about sharks, too, even though they do scare me a little bit. <laughs>
1: But I, I think maybe that's the type of, not to say adrenaline junkie, but the reason why I'm interested in the paranormal yeah. and things like this is because I like those things that kind of get my my heart racing a little bit, but at the same point in time, I have a healthy respect for
0: Absolutely. Is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you wanted to share still?
1: One of the things, and I don't know if it has really anything to do with anything but a personal experience of mine, like I said, is the reason I think where the story of the Moro Castle is endeared to me so much is that um, when I was back in high school, my friends and I were out on the beach one day, probably when we shouldn't have been, you know, watching one of those summer storms. One of our friends got the car and we were out there. And, you know, we got brave and went down on the beach. And this was on the north end. And at that, that time, there's like a senior tower and a treatment plant. So it was like one of those things where the kids went to go hang out. And uh, it's one of those days where I saw something, I smelt something. And I even mm. said to my friend, I was like, Do you smell smoke? And he's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, okay, fine. And I was like, you know, okay, whatever. And I, I was like, mm, it's not someone smoking. I was like, and we're not supposed to have bonfires here. I was like, but whatever. And I kept looking over at bench and Hall and I saw just, you know, something flapping and it was just strange. And it's one of those things I think even you've spoken of, like when you try to make faces and things in the cloud, I had just convinced myself that. I was like, all right, maybe it's just a kite stuck in there or something like that. And at the time I didn't know too much about the story of the Mora Castle. So fast forward many years later, and like I said, we had, you know, my adopted grandparents out there. Basically, he's telling the story of, you know, watching them hook these cables up to the the ship and ferry themselves over there. And I kind of sat there and I went a little white and they asked me like, are, are you okay? And I didn't, I didn't want to admit at the time, cause I was embarrassed. And I was just like, well, I kind of had an experience a while. And I was like, I really wonder if that's what I was seeing because in my head at the time, it, I was just saying, oh, it's something flapping in the wind. But I thought to myself, like, it just looked like someone was swinging from a swing or something like that from there, but it couldn't have been. And so it was like I said, it's just one of those things where I think, you know, it's the story that I'll always keep with me. You know, I'll tell my kids and hopefully their kids will tell their kids. And whether it's my grandfather's story, never getting forgotten or just the history of this story being shared from generation to generation, you know, that's that's I think something that's always going to be special to me no matter
0: what. Sure. I can understand that completely.
1: You know, and it doesn't always have to to be scary. There's a beautiful plaque now that was dedicated for one of the anniversaries for the Moor Castle, which I think is fantastic. And it'll just be an opportunity for people to come there if they ever really want to and experience it for themselves and do a little self-guided tour.
0: Well, Melissa, I want to thank you for suggesting this to me, because I definitely wouldn't have thought of it myself. And then for doing some research that you did on it and for sharing all of your wonderful stories and knowledge on it. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Well, I thank you so much uh, for giving me the opportunity to share. It's it's nice to have people who can appreciate the topic. And hopefully, you know, I will see people down on the boardwalk.
0: You have a nice evening and uh, rest of your week.
1: You as well. Thank you.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Asbury Park has some great stories and history. Have tragic events at the Jersey Shore location led to hauntings? Is Asbury Park haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, sounds like a great place to check out for sure. Definitely got it on my bucket list. encourage you guys to check out the website at HistoryGhostBump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at HistoryGhostBump at gmail.com. I heard from Ashley Porter. She said that she thoroughly enjoyed the recent episode on Waverly Hill Sanatorium. One of my most favorite novels is based on this location and I thought that you and your listeners might enjoy it as well. It's A White Wind Blue by James Markert. Markert lives in the Louisville area and had been well aware of Waverly's haunted history for years. He toured the facility and began research planning to write a ghost story, but he was deeply moved by the loss and heartache suffered by so many people and chose to write a historical fiction novel instead. This beautiful story transports the reader to Waverly Hills at the height of the TB epidemic. Several areas of the property included in the paranormal tour feature prominently as the settings for some poignant scenes in the novel. Also, a few of the well-known spirits that currently reside at Waverly, such as the nurse found hanging in room 502, appear in the novel as minor characters. No pun intended, but it is truly a haunting and moving story that will stay with you long after you finish reading the book. So I thought I would share that with all of you. And speaking of books, I picked up a great book at the Haunted America Conference. You guys are going to want to read this one and get your hands on it. It's called Disconnected from Death, and it's by April Slaughter and Troy Taylor. And it talks about the evolution of funerary customs and the unmasking of death in America. And I've uh, been thoroughly enjoying that, so check it out. I have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. First up is Mujer del Sol, History and Haunting's Five Stars. Each episode imparts a bit of history along with a good ghost story. How can that go wrong? Well, so far it hasn't. As of June of 2018, this is a great podcast. Thank you so much. Greg Poe, awesome four stars. Addictive podcast feels much like going on a haunted history tour of creepy places around the world. And Mama of Jay-Z, entertaining four stars. The hosts are charming. The stories are fun and it's a nice length podcast. The hosts have pleasant voices and tell entertaining stories. I've never been much into truly scary stories, but I enjoy the history they inject into the tales they share. Thank you for your review. Appreciate it. I want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery Ashley Dyer and Paula Mitchell, who will both be getting marble headstones, and Nikita Unrizact, and I hope I said that right. You will be getting a chest tomb. Mort, I'm back from the Haunted America conference. That means you need to get to work. Stop laying around playing those video games. I told you Resident Evil will rot your brain. Oh, man. But I love zombies. Be
1: sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump, like the page and follow us.